Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. After he said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethphage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent out departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus and after throwing their cloaks on it, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. These are our sacred stories. Thanks be to God. From waving palms to weeping passion, from shouts of Hosanna to cries of anguish, to blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to crucify, from spreading cloaks to spilling blood, Holy, last week. Holy week begins with Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem at the beginning of the week of Passover. Jerusalem was a place of tension. It was the center of religious devotion, the place of God's presence in the temple. And it was also the center of religious collaboration with the imperial government. Under Roman rule, not only were people to bring their tithes to the temple, but they also had to pay their imperial taxes there. On Sunday, Palm Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey, cheered on by his followers. Jesus' entry was in direct contrast to the Roman imperial procession of troops and cavalry that had entered Jerusalem Every, that entered Jerusalem every year to prepare for the influx of people at Passover. Columns of soldiers and horses, armor and weapons, they all appear in such sharp contrast to a single man on a donkey with crowds waving palm branches. Jesus' parade proclaimed his devotion to a realm of peace and a God of justice, rather than a kingdom of might. From this public demonstration of the contrast between Jesus' kingdom of peace and the Roman kingdom of oppression, Jesus' passion for the realm of God bleeds into Monday and Tuesday. 
On each of these days, Jesus confronts the political and religious authorities. On Monday, he holds a demonstration in the courtyard of the temple. The home of God, he said, had become a den of robbers, co-opted by Rome for taxation, the center of religious enmeshment with imperial power. And so he turned over the tables. On Tuesday, Jesus goes right back to the temple. And this time we're given a guide to nonviolent engagement, a primer on how to focus on the problem, an example of what it might look like to love our enemies. Jesus' detractors try to trap him. They ask, what about taxes? Should we pay them or not? And Jesus responds, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. If the coin belongs to Caesar, let him have it. The rules are Caesar's. The violence, the oppression, Caesar's. And how we respond, that's God's. And Caesar has no power over that. Jesus' teaching on nonviolence is integral to his proclamation of the dawning of the reign of God. Jesus shows us how to resist the oppressors without being made over in their likeness. How to move against violence without being violent. On Wednesday, Jesus stays in Bethany. No trips to Jerusalem, no shouting, no table flipping, no challenging authorities. Maybe he's tired. He sits down at the table and a woman comes to him with expensive ointment in an alabaster jar. She breaks the jar open and the leper's house where they've been staying begins to smell not of rotting flesh but of sweet, sweet, Sweet smell intensifies as she pours the ointment on Jesus' head, massaging it into his hair. It doesn't take long for the perfumed smell to make its way to the other disciples, and they come and they find Jesus sitting at the table with the woman pouring ointment on his hair. And the sight and the smell and the small space, it's just too much. They've been following this man for months, some of them for years. They've spent so many nights sleeping outside. They found shelter with lepers and tax collectors and other outcasts. They've been hungry while sharing their bread with those whose bellies are even more empty. And now this. The disciples asked, why was this ointment wasted in this way? This Ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. It's not written in the Bible, but you have to wonder if they think or given to us. We could have had a decent meal, maybe slept in a bed that didn't smell like a leper's home. Ointment is worth a year's wages. Following you, we walked away from wages, from our votes, from our tax booths. We thought we were changing the world, not getting ourselves killed. For what? 
What are you doing letting this woman waste so much money on you? Jesus replies, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's performed a good service for me. She has done what she could. She has done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for its burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. This woman, all those who've been following Jesus, this woman understood what Jesus has been trying to tell them. Each time Jesus prophesied about his own death and resurrection, she heard and she believed. And she drew the obvious conclusion. Since you're going to die, I must anoint you now beforehand because I will never have a chance to do it afterward. She embodies the lavish generosity of the realm of God. seems to me that in Jesus's last week, we are given again and again alternatives. Two parades, the empire's parade of military might and the peasant parade of peace. Two ways of dealing with conflict, effort after effort to entrap or non-violent active love as resistance. Two ways to be a disciple the woman and her lavish outpouring of love, the woman doing what she can, or Judas and his bitter betrayal. As Wednesday ends, the plot for Jesus' arrest and execution is set in motion. For Judas's kiss, Jesus, in the way of people who seem to know their death is near, calls his disciples to him. One last meal. One last conversation. Jesus shares bread and wine and words. He pleads with the disciples, remember me. Remember me. My time is coming to an end and I need to know that as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, that I will be with you in your memory, that my passion and my love will not be forgotten, that you will carry on the work of building the kingdom of God right here on earth. And from these tender moments as death approaches, we move swiftly into the anguish of the Garden of Gethsemane. The disciples who cannot stay awake to pray with Jesus as he begs, that if there is another way, that the cup might pass from him. And into this garden scene of sleeping disciples and anguished Jesus enters Judas with the authorities. And Jesus is betrayed, arrested, beaten, mocked. Crowds betray their shouts of Hosanna. Forgive us Barabbas and then crucify. Jesus is executed on a cross, an imperial cross. 
reserved for those who defy imperial authority. Jesus was killed. He didn't just die. He was executed by the powers that ruled his world. He gave his life for his passion. His passion, the realm of God's love and justice and peace. In Luke's Gospel, after the exhilarating ride of early Sunday, but before the anger and table-turning of Monday, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. He says, if you even you had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, if you had only recognized the things that make for peace. This lament seems to color every moment of Jesus's last week. If only you had known the things that make for peace. If only you had seen the way of nonviolent resistance, the way of lavish love, the way of remembering. We are moving through Holy Week once again in our time and in our place, and the same choices are before us. As we come for communion, may we consider how we want to follow Jesus where we want to focus our time and energy. May we work with passion for the realm of God's justice. May we choose to know the things that make for peace and do them. In just a moment, we'll sing a hymn, and before we do, the deacons will come and gather the communion elements. After the hymn, we'll move outside the labyrinth side or the garden side of the sanctuary, and we'll have communion. We'll share wine or water and bread. Once we have communion, we'll return to this space, to our sanctuary. Here at Covenant, everyone is always welcome. You, exactly you, are welcome to take bread and wine and water. You're welcome to remember welcome to know and do the things that make